Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded Plus podcast. This week I'm talking to the rugby historian and journalist Hugh Richards about the early history of the Six Nations tournament. Hugh is the author of some significant books, including A Game for Hooligans, A World History of Rugby Union, The Red and the White, The History of Anglo-Welsh Rugby Union Internationals, Dragons and All Blacks about the 1953 All Blacks over Britain, and one of the editors of the Cambridge Companion to Football. He was also the rugby correspondent for the Financial Times and is now a writer for the ESPN Scrum website. He's also the only person I know who can legitimately be described as an expert on rugby union, rugby league and soccer, and I suspect baseball. Although we're talking about the Six Nations, you won't hear anything about the weekend's matches. That's because A, this is a history podcast, and B, we recorded the interview last week on a very scratchy internet link, so apologies for any turbulence on the line. So, Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tony. It's very, very, very nice to be invited. It's an extremely flattering build-up, which I hope, I hope the listeners are not going to be disappointed by what follows. I suppose the place to get started, because I think one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is emphasise that there's a history of rugby in total. So one of the reasons I wanted to get you on, to talk about the origins of the Four Nations, and that basically takes place before the 1895 split. So in a sense, it's as much about the or, the origin years of rugby league as it is about rugby union. So oh, yeah. um, can you talk about how, how did the Four Nations begin? Well, it's it, it, the, one of the interesting things about well, the Four Nations, it was then the Home Nations, call it what you want, was that it's incredibly informal. Um, it doesn't actually have a, it takes a very, very long time to develop any sort of sense of it being a formal competition in the way the, re, you know, the reason, for instance, there's no trophy until 1994, 110 years on. So the way it grows up is as a series of what you call a series of bilaterals. It's the countries arrange matches against each other. And this gradually develops to the point at which everybody's playing everybody else. Even then, it's not regarded by the administrators as having any sort of formal um, status. Um, nobody gets awarded the championship trophy. So the idea of who is the cha- who are the champions um, essentially is something which, which appears in the press and the media. And in, I think in the in the minds of fans. And of course, the other thing that's worth remembering is that you're very, very early in the history of rugby as an organised sport. You've had um, the formation of the Rugby Football Union in 1871. And in the same year, you get the first match, England-Scotland. <clears throat> and gradually, in the, in the 18th, Ireland start playing in the mid-1870s, Wales playing in the 1881. Uh, but it, it is, it grows it grows informally. Uh, the general view is that the first year of the competition is 1883. Uh, that's not actually the year in which everybody plays everybody else for the first time. Wales don't play Ireland. But it is the year two things happen. Wales plays Scotland, which in a sense completes the set of everybody playing everybody else at some point. And England win all three matches. So it's the first year that looked like a championship and I'm very fond of the first match for two reasons one it's in Swansea uh, which obviously I regard with the same favour as you regard Harlem for much the same reasons uh, but it's also a real oddity of a match but because it's the 1883 champ although it's the 1883 championship it's actually played in 1882 so the foundation game of the championship is the only one in its entire history that's not played in what might be called the right year yeah, I think that's quite interesting because one of the things that struck me when I was uh, when I was thinking about this was that 
there's also soccer's home international championship that runs in parallel and that starts in uh, the 1883-84 season you wonder to what extent both of these tournaments as they develop are in competition with each other and I wondered if you had any thoughts about to what extent there was uh, you know both of them that competitive instinct were driving both of these tournaments I think certainly they're, they're aware of each other and I suppose one factor in this is that they, is that they have so recently been the same game if you think about it, the extent to which there is a point at which you have football, which, you know, that's, a, that's a sort of rather inchoate mass with different rules everywhere, which gradually develops into the two separate codes we know now. But certainly in the 1880s, you have Charles Alcock, of course, involved with both games, uh, writing in the football annual. And of course, it's interesting, it's called the football annual. Um, yeah. It's still looking at both sports. And in, if you read Hancock's editorials, so Alcock's editorials, um, there is still a hankering after a sort of a reunification of the two games. So I think you know they're they're very much in competition at that stage because um, they're both sort of striking out slightly into the unknown. Um, it's very it's a very very different world if you think of you know nowadays where you have largely elderly officialdom and players never the, never the twain shall meet. You know, they're very very different in terms of generation. Is it you're back there? Is essentially they're the same people because yeah, you don't. I think that's you, really important. Yeah, you know, you know, you, you know, you you don't have any elders there. Uh, you know, who are old players? They simply don't exist. So you've got the same people very. You know, the, the same people very often who are on the RF on the RFU committee are likely to be playing still to be playing for England. Um, this has, I think, what this has is a very very interesting consequence certainly in rugby is you get that early generation of people who take office in the 1880s then hang around for an incredibly long time and you've got the same people are still there in the 1920s and 1930s or in the case of Horace Lyon the president of the Welsh Rugby Union actually, is actually around until after the Second World War yeah so something like 1947 1949 right, you know, yeah. and you have, you've got a remarkable view of extremely durable people but interestingly enough I think in their, in their mind are still players um, but of course what also happens they get older they get more conservative they you know they they struggle to see the need for change and so you know ultimately that's they, they, they still think it's a player's game because they're in charge but of course increasingly they be, they become distanced from the players as uh, simply simply by you know age expectation experience and temperament but it, it is it's the, but i think it, you know that that group stay around for a very very long time and i think have a very important formative influence on the game in a sense i think that contrasts with soccer as well because when you find by the time you get to the mid-1880s, 1890s with soccer, then there's an administrative layer of men like John Sutcliffe for the Football League who have really never played the game at any great, any great level. And so there is that sense there's a separate administration. Whereas, as you say, in rugby, in rugby union, that sense that the people who founded the game or were there at the beginning, they're with the game, you know, as you say, with Horace Lyon until the 1940s. So that, that has a tremendous conservative with a small C effect. The other thing that's quite interesting is that, I don't know the answer to this, you might do. When was the four nations or the home nations as it would have been called then when was it actually seen as a tournament rather than simply a series of internationals because as you said there was no there was no trophy in fact the only trophy was the Calcutta Cup and the England-Scotland match for well certainly for the whole of the 19th century was seen as the most important game uh, unless you were Welsh or Irish of course um, so it's kind of it's a strange tournament in that it probably doesn't see itself as a tournament I think that's right I think it's fair not, not least of course because it tends to be, it tends to be play, it's played over a few weeks which I think gives you a stronger sense of it 
as a competition. I think it acquires that sense of being a tournament fairly fairly early on. Not least, for instance, you've got the conception of the, you know, the, idea, the idea of the Triple Crown, which people start talking about. And you get that remarkable period in the 1890s when it's won by each nation in turn, immediately, immediately for the state of 1895. What's in, what, what I, oddly enough, I hadn't struck me until I looked at it again this morning, was over the, over the following few years, you get to the same sequence <coughs> of... Ireland, Scotland and Wales in a four year period, but with England missing out. And of course that you know, that's the effect of England having been chronically weakened by the loss of their best players many of their best players in eighteen ninety five. Um, yeah, so exactly. Think, which we'll, I, which so we'll get think, onto in, in, in a bit. Yeah. Right. So I think I think that's uh, and again, I you know I, I I couldn't put the date in it. I I think the sense of it, you know, as a tournament, as a championship that people play for, uh, develops fairly early. But of course, as you know, as we as we know, rugby, you know, rugby union has a great capacity for pretending that things which are clearly there aren't there. You know, obviously, it later turns into money uh, in in those yeah. terms. And so, and so there, there continues to be a view, you know, this, the, the, in a sense, if other people want to call it a championship, that's fine. But it doesn't actually have any, it doesn't have any sort of official standing for quite a long time. In 1884, there's the dispute between England and Scotland when England scored a disputed try against Scotland. Uh, basically, and Scotland disputes it because they say, we've knocked the ball on, therefore it should be a scrum. England say you've knocked the ball on, but we want the advantage, and we scored. And this was a uh, was a, a, a running saw on the game for about three or four seasons after that, and that led to the formation of the international body. You wonder whether that was the the catalyst for for it to become more structured and a much more uh, much more self awareness as a tournament. I think I think that's almost certainly right, because one of the other things, of course, which factors in that dispute is, of course, that Scotland and England, when they play at home, play under a different set of rules, play under different sets of rules. And, yeah. it's a, and, it's a, and of course, this is one of the things that the international board ultimately sorts out. So in what the, you know, say, as it's the, the championship um, in you know, whatever form it takes is the catalyst of the formation of the international board you know, with, the, with the idea that you have an, you know, an, a ruling body which will deal with precisely this sort of issues. And of course, it's all part of the development of the game, which leads for instance, to the realisation that um, actually gentlemen cannot be trusted to sort out their own disputes, however much you might wish it. And that actually, if you get, if you get two groups of competitive gentlemen playing rugby against each other, they, they will be rows and disagreements. And there's quite a history of, of games being abandoned in the 1880s is simply because the two captains failed to failed to agree. Um, That's right, because obviously at that point there, there's no referee, there's no agreed way of adjudicating on disputes other than for the captains to discuss it amongst themselves. That's right, there, there is a referee at this game. Actually, he's one of those rather interesting people who's doing um, lots of different things. A chap called George Scriven, um, who is, I think is that year's president of the Irish Rugby Union, and he's only stopped playing for Ireland the year before. So he's a classic example of... And he's still only in his late 20s. So you've got you know, a classic example of those people who are doing all these different jobs because you know, there, is not, there is not yet a group of, old, you know, of older retired players who, you know, who, who go into administration. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's, the existence of the matches, I think, is a serious factor in the, in the formation of the international board. And, of course, what it also does um, is disrupt the championship for several years. And that's, again, I think is one of the striking things as you look at the early years is the number of occasions on which a full programme isn't played because of some dispute. It's, so it starts in the early to mid-1880s. And I think it's a, 
one of my memories as a writer is going to the uh, going to the World Cup in 1987 and thinking, well, I think I'm in at the beginning of something completely new, which is going to change rugby, which was proved to be the case. But you also That's thought, well, true, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but you also thought, well, hang on, this might only ever happen once. You know, if it if it works out very badly, if it doesn't get the crowds, whatever. Um, and I think that's probably the point with the you know, you know, nobody knows in the early 1880s whether this is just something that's going to you know last for, last for a year or two and disappear, or whether it's going to become what it ultimately becomes is sort of the the dominant narrative in the uh, in the history of British and Irish rugby. And yeah, I think that's a, un, un, that's a, that the, is an important question because obviously you and again it's the way that traditions are invented because although these people in the 1880s and 1890s were feeling their way towards organising the competition. But they had no sense of what its future might be. They had no sense that uh, it would be anything other than just England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. They had no yeah. sense that France even, uh, let alone anywhere else in Europe, would, would eventually be involved. And certainly as far as I can see, also no great enthusiasm for it. There's, Absolutely, yeah. You know, one of the consistent patterns in both rugby, in, well, I think rugby and particularly to some extent cricket, um, is these are games in which the idea was that you played other people like you and you re- weren't really interested in playing anybody else. Um, well, so that's th- true. I mean, it's in the 1930s, the, the RFU discussed whether rugby should, they should even have contacts with non-English speaking rugby playing nations well, because course, yeah. it's our game. And again, that sort of insularity, small C conservatism gets even stronger after the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right because I think what does happen there is that and again, if you look at what's happened in in European rugby, is that the home nations, you know, even though you know, it's next to door, um, the home nations, as organ, as opposed to um, a lot of the individuals, for instance, British individuals who were involved in, in creating the game in France, if it, if it had been left to the British, nobody would be playing rugby in Europe. That was very much being driven by the French, and obviously, well, in particular, after 1931, when when the French were expelled from the from contact with the home nations, in a sense, had to had to look elsewhere. I think that's one of the great lessons of the history of sport that the British might invent the rules, but it's the French that actually take them around the world, and that's true with soccer, with FIFA. French initiative, uh, as you say, with Rugby Union, with FIRA, the Amateur uh, European Federation, but also in Rugby League, it was uh, it was the French who uh, initiated the World Cup. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of general lesson about football codes and the French there, I think. Well, I suppose there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a vaguely cultural thing going on here with the risk of huge generalisation. The, the, the French, I think, can, can conceive the possibility that every can conceive, that everybody might one one day be French and what, you know will want to be French and act like a Frenchman. Um, yeah. The, one of the one of the issues we have in Britain and obviously not just in sport is the immense difficulty uh, many of us have the idea that any anybody who doesn't look or sound like us could could possibly be British. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, that goes back, uh, that's a much deeper question about well, precisely. the nature of the British Empire and the French Empire. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that, and, but that obviously has, a, like everything else in, uh, in society, it has its impact on the way that, that sports are viewed. Just moving on slightly, you, t- you touched on it earlier on. Obviously, rugby changed fundamentally after 1895 when the clubs in the North split away to form the Northern Union and therefore were no longer, uh, their players were no longer eligible to play for the uh, England or Welsh Rugby Union teams. What do you think the impact of that was on the, uh, on the Four Nations? I think it's enormous. Um, well, two things happen. Uh, there's a short-term effect, which is that England, which has 
has not has not had a monopoly, as I said. But in the, you know, the four years four years immediately before um, the the triple crown has been won in succession by Israel nation. But Eng- England is the generally being the the strongest nation, with Scotland normally at that stage in pursuit of them. Um, England for about fifteen years then struggle. What happens in England, I think, over over time is that. While they, while the North is never fully replaced, towns in the Midlands, places like Northampton, Leicester, in the West Country, Bristol, their players start getting into the England team in the in the first years of the 20th century. Got the strength of Devon and Durham at that time. So, in, but Eng, England take about 15 years to become seriously competitive again. Then, then of course, go on to one of their one of the best periods in their history, um, either side of the First World War. What that does, I think, it creates it, a it creates more space of the other nations. Of course, Wales in particular um, take that up. Wales have that extraordinary period between 1904, 1905, 1911, 12, uh, which is as good, strong a period as any British nations ever had. Um, but in the longer term, I think what it does, it makes the four nations, it was then much more competitive. I think if we had, logic suggests, given that the countries that lost out most conspicuously were uh, were Wales because of the loss of developed players who went north, but England even more so because of the loss of the, of the best talent in its two strongest counties. Without that, you've got to suspect that it would have looked more like the football tournament in that Wales and England would have been much more dominant. Yeah, uh, Wales, I mean, Wales would have been the rugby equivalent of what Scotland were in football. That's right, yeah. Wouldn't they? And I, and I, it, it probably wouldn't have been quite the near monopoly that England and Scotland had in football. But at the same time, the great strength of the six nation, five, six nations has been that it is over over long periods very competitive. If you look at yeah, the, absolutely, yeah. You know, if you look at the relation if you look at all if you look at all the fixtures, um, you know, the win loss records, I haven't looked at this for a little while, so it may have shifted slightly. And obviously you have to exclude Italy from this. Is over over the long term, um, most they're nearly all within the range of sort of sixty forty. You know, no, you know, nobody is hugely dominant in any of the fixtures over time, and of course, most most years you tend to think there's a, you know there are several candidates to win it. You know, it is interesting that nobody has ever won three consecutive championships uh, over this time. One factor from that, of course, is the home and away alternation, and another has been where the way rule, the rules defining the champion have changed over time but nevertheless i think that's quite striking is what you don't see, what you don't get is very long periods with one with one country totally dominant and that i think that sense of possibility you get in the six nations as it now is that in most years uh, you're going to have something unexpe- you'll probably have something unexpected over time everybody gets their shot um, I think it's, I think has been very very imp- I think it's been very important in terms yes. of make, oh, you know, of making it a sieve. The, and I suppose the other thing worth bearing in mind is it eliminates the likelihood of there being serious competitive club rugby for a long time. And so that what that means is that the international game I think becomes even more dominant. The, the thing that I think is quite intriguing is, say, in a counterfactual world, if the RFU in 1895, instead of driving the Northern clubs out, had adopted some form of semi-professionalism or broken time payments, and the game had remained united, what would that have meant for Welsh rugby? Because Welsh rugby, obviously, as you know, better than better than I do, and pretty much better than most people. The golden age of Welsh rugby was from the 1890s to the First World War. And there's that period from, I think, 1899 to 1909 where... England never defeat Wales in an international match. 
with a full strength England side or England being able to choose from all of its rugby players, I wonder how golden the Welsh golden age would have been. I think it would have been. Yeah. I think it certainly would have been much tougher. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think it would. Still, I mean, you look at the class of players that they have; they still would have been a great, great team. I, but yeah, well, I think. Well, I, suppose, I think the point of remembering with that with that team uh, was, of course, that they there was that they beat New Zealand in 1905, which I think just as in just as the asterisk against the 1970s teams, they couldn't beat New Zealand. Is that the fact the Wales? Well, it, obviously, it's very, it's very, very hard to tell um, at that stage, particularly. Of course, since during most of that period, there's not much rugby. Rugby league is, you know, has yet to develop an international dimension, yeah. so you don't quite, you don't know, for instance, how you know how strong an England rugby league team was at that time because it doesn't exist. So it's very, it's a very, very hard one. Yeah, my sense is that that Wales team, I think, would have been great and w- would have been dominant, but um, it would, it would undoubtedly, I think, have had to have to fight much harder for its victories. And you've got, you've got to guess that um, instead of that unbeaten run from 1899 uh, that there might there might have been a couple of defeats somewhere along the line pro- probably in England what's striking about that period is you get some it, 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 it is what often happens with these runs is is England routinely get slaughtered um, at Swansea and Cardiff but actually do rather but you know can can normally give Wales a game where, wherever they're playing and of course this is the last decade before the building of Twickenham so they're yeah. still moving around Blackheath Richmond Le- Leicester Bristol you know to get you know the fixture really does move around at that period but in, you know England will usually give England, England will usually give Wales a game with English soil and of course that, that again that comes back to one of the factors in 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 the, the tournament is that home away alternation which I think is one of the other things that makes it very very hard you know for, for teams to build up long winning sequences on that note because we're running out of time and what is supposed to be a 20 minute podcast we'll adjourn because I think there's a lot more that we can discuss in the future on I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Rugby Reloaded Plus. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. Hugh is at Hugh Richards 3. Uh, that's Hugh H-U-W. And if you wanted to get a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at my website at www.rubbyreloaded.com. Hugh can be found writing for ESPN on the internet. And that's about it. So until next week, thanks for listening.